Hello and welcome to another Linguistics Career Cast, the podcast devoted to exploring careers for linguists outside academia. I'm your host, Laurel Sutton. Nora Diaz holds a BA in English Language Teaching and Translation. She is a full-time published English-Spanish translator and translation team leader, working on a wide variety of topics. Her interest in productivity has led to a constant exploration of technology to boost productivity, such as CAT tools, speech recognition, and custom macros. In her blog, Nora Diaz on translation, teaching, and other stuff, she shares what she has learned with translators from around the globe. She was responsible for updating the book, The Translator's Toolbox. Topics include translation, conference interpretation, work environment, self-employment, TNI, translation and interpretation, LSP, language service providers, remote work, and project management. Links to Nora's LinkedIn profile, blog, and other resources are in the show notes. Okay, well, Nora, welcome so much to our podcast. We are so excited to hear about your career journey and all the things that you have done. Um, So why don't we start at the beginning, and why don't you tell everybody a little bit about your background, your academic background, and what you studied while you were at university? Um, Of course. Well, first of all, thank you for the invitation, Laurel. I'm really excited to be here. And well, let me tell you about my background. Maybe I should start by saying that um, I first, I decided that I wanted to work in um, something that had to do with languages when I was in high school. Mm -hmm. And so that determined um, what I, what kind of degree I needed Mm -hmm. um, in my mind. Um, I'm in Mexico. I live in Mexico. And in Mexico, you don't typically just start um, university without having a clear idea of what your degree Mm -hmm. is going to be. So Mm -hmm. you have to declare that from the very beginning, which is a big responsibility for a Mm -hmm. (laughs) 17-year-old, if you think about it. (laughs) But I had a very clear idea. And now my constraint um, there was that I didn't um, have the possibility to move very far away from where my family lived. So I had to find something within my somewhat immediate vicinity. And so the um, the state university, which was one hour away from where my family lived, offered a degree in um, linguistics that included um, teaching and translation and interpreting. So that sounded perfect to me. And that's what I did. Um, So I went to school for four and a half um, years to get my degree in, um, well, it's just, it's called a degree in English, but it includes all those things. Mm -hmm. And um, we focused um, a lot, even though this, this was in Mexico, in a Mexican university, the entire time that you went to school, the classes were in English and um, because you were studying to either be um, an English um, teacher or a teacher trainer, which I became later on in my career, mm-hmm. or a translator and an interpreter. So that was important. And so that's, um, it's called a BA in English, mm-hmm. but uh, with very heavy coursework on linguistics and, um, you know, advanced grammar and history and things like that. Uh, let me ask you, did you grow up bilingual or did you learn English in school? That's a very good question. I did not grow up bilingual. <laughs> I, when I decided that I wanted to work with languages when I was about 16 years old, um, my main obstacle was I was monolingual at the time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I thought, well, I have to learn English. And when I um, 
contacted the university to see what the entrance exam or the admission exam would involve. And they said, it's basically an English test, an advanced English test, Mm -hmm. and it's both written and oral. Then I said, well, I have one year to get ready for this test. Wow. And so I started learning English (laughs) seriously at the age of 16. Wow. Um, so yes, that's that's how I got um, to this, and I haven't regretted it ever. <laughs> I've enjoyed every minute of it. Um, how much? Uh, uh, so you said the d- degree covered a lot of different areas studying language. How, how much of it was really linguistics? Like, what kind of linguistics training did you get? Well, there were. Um, it, this was a long time ago, so I couldn't tell you in great detail. <laughs> I don't remember the specifics. But uh, we did cover linguistics um, in, with the idea that, that you would use it for uh, in, in, on the field, right? Like uh-huh. applied linguistics. Right, right. So yeah. we would study things like psycholinguistics and phonetics and phonology and, mm-hmm. um, you know, things like that. So there, there must have been around, I, I want to say about probably um, six semester long courses that were purely focused on linguistics. And then there were other um, other classes that had to do with uh, that that somehow intersected with linguistics mm-hmm. without being purely about linguistics. Like, for example, um, teaching methodology, uh, where you had to see where linguistics, any knowledge of linguistics, would be applied mm-hmm. if you were to become a teacher or a teacher trainer. Interesting. Okay, so you had all this great training. And at the end of it, what were, what were your thoughts? Like, did you have a real trajectory as to where you were going to go or did opportunities present themselves to you? Um, well, I, when I was in school, I was very lucky that, um, my degree was not hugely popular (laughs) and that may sound odd, but the reason why I think I was lucky, um, that that was the situation at the time. And I'm, I'm, I'm talking about, um, there must have been uh, throughout all the, you know, every class that was taking that degree, maybe about 50 people total. Mm-hmm. And so that was good because my university had a lot of contact with the British Council. Mm-hmm. And the British Council would come and then they would teach classes. Um, you know, they would do training for, for our professors. And because the school was so small, um, we would be invited. If anybody wanted to join, they were welcome to. And guess who always raised their hand? <laughs> I was always there. And so uh, I would take every opportunity. I I had it in my mind. I knew that I wanted to be, like the main thing that I wanted to be was a conference interpreter. That, mm. that was my main goal. Okay. And um, and I'm lucky um, to say I'm, I'm happy to report that I am a conference interpreter. I have been for many years. And But the other thing that I w- wanted to do is I wanted to be a teacher trainer. Um, so for those teaching English. And I knew that I needed to take certain steps to do that. And I also knew um, that I couldn't wait until I was done with school to get started. Mm-hmm. So for those two things um, in particular, what I started doing right away was, well, with the British Council training that was offered to our um, our faculty, I would always ask to be included and they were always kind enough to say yes. And that is what prepared me to be a teacher trainer. And 
of course, by putting yourself out there and always raising your hand, people notice you. Mm-hmm. And so I was given a scholarship by the British Council <laughs> because wow. I was probably always there at the classes to um, to go to a, um, a UK university of my choice to get further training to be a teacher trainer. Mm-hmm. And so that was wonderful. And I was able to pick um, a university that trained on communicative language teaching. This was many years ago, about 30 years ago. And um, and so that was the beginning of my uh, very enriching and very fulfilling, um, you know, time as a teacher trainer. Yeah. Um, so that it, was that was one. Yeah. So I'm, I'm really curious about the, the um, British consul um, connection there. So were they doing this in the hopes that they were getting sort of a pipeline of people that would go and work for them in the end? You know, like what was the benefit for them of doing all this amazing work? <laughs> yeah, I think, I think, um, I'm not sure. I'm not entirely sure, but um, I know that they offered one scholarship per year to a student who was interested in becoming a teacher trainer. Mm-hmm. I did work for the British Council afterwards um, in a program that was um, implemented in Mexico, uh, providing t- um, training to English teachers at the university level. Mm-hmm. And so I worked for several years as part of that program, not full time. It was, you know, whenever we had training, I would be involved in that in the northern part of Mexico. I think they only did it, you know, as an outreach um, kind of situation where they had this mandate to somehow support universities mm-hmm. that were or programs that were involved in the teaching of English mm-hmm. and in the advancement of English and culture and things like that. Yeah. Um, I don't. There weren't any requirements like you had to give something back or anything. Yeah. Not really. Yeah, interesting. Okay. I, I think what I, what I hear from what you were saying, I mean, that point about, you know, putting your hand up and always trying to get people to, you know, volunteering and then they're going to notice you is a really good lesson for people. The more you say yes to things, the more people you'll meet, the more contacts you'll meet, and the more opportunities might present themselves to you. So, Absolutely. You know, mm-hmm. you really, you have to sort of advocate for yourself in those situations and just try different things, right? Find out if something's interesting or if it works for you. And if it doesn't, that's okay. You can go and do something else. Absolutely. And I always tell students um, that it would be great if someone were to come to our house and knock on our door and discover us, but that's (laughs) likely not going to happen. Right. (laughs) So you have to put yourself in in the situation, in the company of the people that you need to be in um, to do what you want to do. Mm-hmm. That's actually also how I started my conference interpreting career. Oh, okay, great. <laughs> well, tell us about that. Uh, well, well, I was still a student. Um, I was in my last year of school. The School of Dentistry in my university, the, the university that I went to is the, the state university. So it's mm-hmm. quite large and it has many different schools. And so the School of Dentistry was organizing their annual conference and they needed three interpreters, um, simultaneous interpreters for the conference because they didn't have a budget to actually hire someone. <laughs> Plus, back then, there weren't people who did it, um, you know, they would have had to bring someone from Mexico City or someone mm-hmm. or something like that. So when, of course, they contacted uh, my school to say, well, would any of the students be interested? Again, I said, yes, I would be interested. <laughs> <laughs> and and looking back on that, um if I if I were 
knowing what I know now, <laughs> you know, I think of myself as a very naive um, 21 year old saying, yes, of course, I would be happy to do it. And it turned out great. And it was the beginning of many great things. But um, I'm, I'm really glad, you know, uh, of having been so bold um, mm -hmm. at that age, because maybe I wouldn't do it now. And I would have missed a lot of opportunities. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, what happened then is that I, it, this was a three-day conference. It was a large conference. And I ended up being the main interpreter wow. because I wasn't um, experienced. I had never done it before. I prepared and uh, read and over-prepared and reread everything that was provided to me as reference materials. So I was super well-prepared when I went to the conference. Mm -hmm. The uh, organizers were really happy um, with what I did. And there was a man there who um, had this business that where he installed and rented out all the equipment for mm -hmm. the simultaneous interpreting um, part of the conference. And he was very happy with the work that I did. And he said, are you available to do more jobs? And of course I said, yes, of course. Mm -hmm. and, so, and so from then on, he would hire me um, to work for him. And that was the beginning of, of my conference interpreting career. Mm -hmm. So once again, raising your hand and saying, yes, I'm willing to do it. I'm willing to try it. Yeah. It's, uh, opens a lot of doors. Uh, that's fantastic. Um, we've talked with some other people about, um, again, the, the difference between academia and being out in the business world, where in academia, the tendency is to stick with one thing for a long time, where and it's sort of, sometimes you're viewed as a failure if you do too many different things, right? It, it's more to stay on a track, where in business, just from your example, you know, you do lots of different things and you never know where that next thing is going to lead you. And it's totally fine to go out and explore and do different things and not feel like, well, I'm going to always do this, this one thing. I'm always going to teach or I'm always going to just do conference interpretation. I can do many things because mm -hmm. you're interested and, and you want to do them. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. I also, you know, when I was, when I completed my degree, probably because I was always there with the faculty and always, um, you know, getting involved in things. I was invited to um, teach um, at my um, at my school. And um, so I said yes. And um, in Mexico, it, well, things work um, differently. And so you can uh, write out of school if, if, um, if you are approved by a board, um, a faculty board to join um, the faculty, then you can do that. And I, I did that. And I enjoyed it so much, but I wasn't entirely sure that that's what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. Mm -hmm. um, and I was invited to do some research and to write in addition to, you know, pr just produce some research in addition to teaching. And I was involved in, uh, in some large um, English teaching um, conferences and I enjoyed that so much, but I always felt like I, for me, um, the practical side of, of things uh, out in the real world was always very appealing. Mm -hmm. And um, I love teaching. I still do. And in my, I decided that um, a life in academia wasn't for me. And so I left about two years, but I never only did that. You mm -hmm. know, even mm -hmm. though, even though I was teaching, I was still, 
um, translating and interpreting and um, and doing teacher training mm-hmm. outside of the university work yeah. that I was doing for the degree. And it, so I, I had to make a decision at that time. And, and I said, well, I'm, this is not what I want to do. And um, I still go back. I still get invited to go back and teach you know, summer courses and things like that. And I'm still very happy to do it because I enjoy teaching so much. Mm-hmm. But um, I'm really happy that I'm out there in, in, um, out in the business world doing other things as well. Can you talk a little bit about um, some of the reasons why being in, in business was, was more appealing or, or just a better fit for you personally? Mm-hmm. Oh, yes. And, and definitely it's a personal decision. Mm-hmm. Um, I have some colleagues who started um, teaching at the same time as I did, and they are still teaching and they are wonderful and they enjoy themselves tremendously. For me personally, um, I've always been very curious about trying out new things and different things. And um, because I maybe this was the reason because I had tried it while I was still a student. I really wanted to do that. Mm. I didn't want to be tied to one place and Mm -hmm. to be doing one thing. And um, as a, as a translator and and as an interpreter, particularly I, well, not so much recently, but I get to travel a lot and see a lot of different things. And um, as a conference interpreter, for example, I do a lot of medical conference interpreting, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, but I also do a lot of technical and also religious. And so it's always something new, something exciting. And um, I don't know, I just, um, I had tried both things and I really enjoyed the business side of things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this this is something that um, I I very much, when I'm talking with students about what they want to do, you know, out in the business world, there's always this consideration of um, what's the best work environment for you, right? Some people really like working at a nine to five job because they like the stability of it. Um, Some people really like project work because it's always something new and different. And, you know, you get to work on different things for other people that just makes them really anxious because they never know what the next thing is. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of self-reflection that has to happen where you you have to know yourself, right? Like what, what is it that's going to benefit me and, and where can I do my best work? And sometimes you have to experiment a little to find that out because you might not know what your best work environment is, but that matching between the the work and the way you like to work, not just the subject matter, but just the way in which you like to work is super important. Absolutely. And, and there is another element at play here that I think I should um, bring up. <laughs> that is, uh, income. Yes. Um, <laughs> and I don't know if it's the same situation for your listeners, but in Mexico, um, when you first get, get started in academia, you don't make a lot of money. Mm-hmm. And that can be your reality for several years. Yeah. Um, and so I didn't want to have to wait several years to make a decent living. And um, by going into business, you know, that wasn't even an issue. Mm -hmm. And so, and that's still the case. And so um, last year or the year before last, I was invited um, to join the faculty of a great university in Mexico City, um, virtually online. But the pay was, I mean, we could make it work because it's just, um, in in Mexico, you get paid by the hour Mm -hmm. when you are not uh, full-time faculty. 
And so the, um, the amount that they were able to offer me, and they were offering me the highest possible rate, um, was not even one-fifth of what I can make doing one hour of work, wow. you know, sitting behind my computer mm-hmm. without having to prepare, uh, the, plan the class and um, deal with examinations and students and all that. And so yeah. I couldn't really justify um, taking the time to do that. Yeah, uh, that that's amazing. And you're right. It is the same situation here in the U.S. I'm not sure about in Europe, but I think it must be pretty similar um, that the pay at universities, especially as you say, when you're starting out, is simply not competitive with what you can get out there in the world. Uh, and the workload is probably a lot less if you're mm-hmm. doing uh, your own business or you're you're working for a company. You're not you're probably not going to be working nights and weekends the way you are when you're in academia and you know grading papers and advising students and all the other stuff that goes along with it. Exactly. Wow. Um, so, in the the career that that you have had so far, you have both worked for companies, but you've also done work independently, right? You're, you're a consultant and you just go work wherever the, the work happens to be, correct? Yes. Well, um, I should um, I should explain that uh-huh. or clarify that I have never been employed by anyone. Oh, okay. Um, I have always done uh, freelance work, mm-hmm. but I have uh, my own little company. Mm-hmm. So that's, um, that's what you would uh, probably see if you look at my online profiles um the the name of the company that i list is one that i created myself okay and so um but i have never been employed um by a company i've always worked as a freelancer through my own company mm-hmm. or just independently okay and was that a a tough thing to do to make your own little company did it take a lot of courage to do that <laughs> Yes, I think uh, <laughs> um, uh, the the main thing, this started out uh, as a, like a teaching consulting kind of company where um, the area where I live is highly industrial. And so we have a lot of uh, factories here that are um, American companies that come here to get, you know, to do some manufacturing tasks and so the, the managers are English speakers and the employees don't speak English. So there were a lot of opportunities to teach English um, for these companies. And that's how we started out. But I had to make a decision at some point also that I, I decided that I didn't want to keep doing that. And I wanted to focus on translation and interpreting. And so that the company trans- had to transform itself into doing that. So the the hardest part at the beginning was, of course, navigating the uncertainty that comes with when you go out there in the mm-hmm. business world and you don't start out having clients mm-hmm. um, right off the bat, right? So that was always difficult. And um, I, I have to say that um, a turning point for me was um, during one of my interpreting jobs, because that uncertainty that you mentioned earlier, where you never know where your next project is going to come from or whether you're going to have any work, that was always very much on my mind. Mm -hmm. And so one day I was um, on an interpreting assignment 
And one of the people um, that I was traveling with, it was like a two-week trip or something like that. Um, and just during a, a flight, just casually mentioned to me, she, um, he said something like, well, have you, um, do you advertise your services online? And this was a long time ago, yeah. like maybe in 2001, 2002. And I said, no, I don't. I always try to get my clients just, you know, locally. And he said, well, you should try it. I know that you could get work. And I was very skeptical. Mm-hmm. I thought, how can I, one little person from one little town in northern Mexico, ever aspire to get clients online, um, especially if I don't even know what to do, and I would be competing with people from all over the world. That's never going to work. But then I thought about it some more, and when I came home, I thought, well, you know, there's um, there's a saying in Spanish that the worst fight is the one that you choose not to fight, mm-hmm. that you, you have lost the fight already if you choose not to fight. <laughs> And so I thought, well, yeah, okay, why not? Let me try it. So I found a portal um, where a website where you could um, go in and create a profile. And this is, of course, very common today, but it wasn't so common back then, where you could create a profile and then just, you know, explain what kinds of things you could do and uh, you would get translation jobs. Mm. Well, that was a turning point for me because some of the clients that I found many years ago, I still work with, um, and it opened a world of possibilities for me. So my, what I learned, the lesson that I learned from that was, um, to never say no to something that I'm not familiar with Mm -hmm. just because it makes me uncomfortable or because I don't know how to do it because you can always learn how to do something. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and also to never feel like you're not enough. And like the opportunities that are out there in the world are not for you. Mm -hmm. Right. 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 Exactly. Um, One thing that most, um, this is true for you too. When you graduate from school and you have a degree, whether it's a BA or an MA or a PhD, unless you have a very specialized linguistic knowledge, the jobs that you are going to look for and the jobs that you will hold aren't going to be called linguist. Right. Mm-hmm. They're going to be called whatever the purpose of the job is, whether it's translation or interpretation or teaching or, or all of that stuff. It's all linguistics, but you're, you're not going to be called a linguist for most people. There's a like, you know, computational linguists get called linguists. But aside from that, very few people mm-hmm. are actually called linguists. That's true. And so the job itself or the project itself may call for translators, interpreters, reviewers, editors. Uh, post editors and all of that is linguistics right Mm -hmm. and so but it's not necessarily called that and in fact I was somewhat surprised um, after I started my career um, in working with what we call LSPs language service providers Mm -hmm. um, who I mean for whom I work as a contractor right as a freelancer but um, but you work with them um, very regularly, and we can talk about that later. But I was very surprised when very early on the project managers would um, send me an email and they would um, say things like, oh, and please look at this um, linguist checklist. And so seeing the word linguist 
as part of what I was doing for them mm-hmm. always surprised me at the beginning. And um, particularly because it doesn't translate directly into Spanish. And so in Spanish, I would not call myself, myself a linguista mm-hmm. um, because in Spanish, um, it impli- the meaning of the word implies um, much more um, specialized work. Mm-hmm. You know, like, but there are other things that, but but in English, it's very common to call people in my field um, linguists. And there are some people who are true linguists, right? Like right. Um, what they do is they, um, they do terminology work and mm-hmm. um, they write papers. They are, I mean, in, in, in the translation industry, there are um, organizations um, that do research that guide, that guides Uh, what we are doing or where the industry Mm -hmm. is going. And a lot of that research is done by linguists Mm -hmm. and people who have training in academia are ideal for that because they're great at putting together research projects and seeing Mm -hmm. them Mm -hmm. to conclusion, you know, and then producing the output that is needed out of that, like whether it be articles or books or whatever. Right. Yeah. I I think that's true. Um, There's, there's a real difference here in the U S between, uh, the popular notion of what a, a linguist is and what linguists actually do, like as part of their job. So I have mm-hmm. often seen someone self-describe as a linguist or um, maybe in a, a a news article or something. And then I'm always curious. I say, oh, I wonder what they studied. And then it turns out what it really meant is just that they speak a bunch of languages. Yes. Or or <laughs> they've read a lot of books or or something like that. And it's like, well, okay, they're not really linguists. They didn't have real linguistic training. So, and I'm sure it's happened to you when people hear you're a linguist, the first question they always ask you is how many languages do you speak? Of course. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and I try to take that I don't take that personally and I will always try to explain to people that it's usually much more than that and in fact I speak one language really well and that's English uh, mm-hmm. but I'm still a linguist and that's okay right because the in-depth knowledge that you have mm-hmm. about the field but um and and, and um you see in in the translation industry or the TNI in industry as we call it translation and interpreting industry there are a lot of people who didn't get here through um, degrees associated with linguistics. Mm -hmm. So, for example, um, a very dear colleague of mine is actually a nurse by training, Hmm. uh, but she decided that she wanted to be um, a translator. She's very successful, very good, very well known all over the world. Um, And so she did not um, go to school to be a linguist, but in our field, she is a linguist, right? Mm-hmm. So, sure. so yeah. what you're saying is absolutely true. So that's true. And, and I think um, people who went to school to get a linguistics degree might um, find it difficult to, um, to well, to, to not necessarily to understand that, but to make themselves fit into this definition of what mm-hmm. a linguist is in this industry. Right. However, they would be able to contribute greatly. Um, mm-hmm. And um, I think they would find it very satisfying as, as a career path. Yeah. It, it sounds like 
there are overlapping skill sets, right? There's the, the linguistic training, um, which allows you to do a lot of analysis or as you were saying to, you know, preparing materials and, and really taking a deep dive, doing research on language. And then there's the skill set of actually being able to translate and interpret, which is just a whole other thing. Mm -hmm. um, and sometimes those overlap and that's you. <laughs> where mm -hmm. those things, but they don't necessarily have to overlap that much. And you can be very happy doing one or, or doing the other. Um, so for some linguists, they may not be great uh, translators or interpreters because that's just not a strong point, but they could still do some work in the field if that's what they're really interested in. Absolutely. And as you were saying that, I was thinking about a particular client that I have where that training in linguistics really uh, makes you stronger as an interpreter. This, um, this client that I work with for a week, every six months, um, is a pastor, um, an evangelical pastor, mm -hmm. and he teaches um, exegesis. And so mm -hmm. you can imagine, I mean, his classes are week-long <laughs> lectures on, um, you know, we sit there for eight hours a day Yeah. Um, analyzing verses of the Bible, mm -hmm. but going into the Greek and going into the Hebrew and then going back to the English and the different translations of the Bible. And then from that, we go into the Spanish translations. And so he will go into one word and dissect it. It's so enjoyable for me. I can't really yeah. begin to tell you, I was <laughs> but that's because that. of my training. <laughs> sure. I mean, you could spend a whole hour talking about one word, right? Yeah. And, and, no, and that's, that's, that's how it is. Yeah. <laughs> I was surprised the first time I worked for him because um, he told me, we're going to work through this, this passage. Well, I think the first two days, uh, we didn't go beyond the first two lines of the passage. <laughs> But there was so much, so much to be said about that. And yeah, so, of course, yeah. Wow. What, that's amazing. Um, so can you give us a, a, a little bit of an idea of, of your clients? So the range of clients. So on one hand, you know, um, medical terminology. On the other hand, pastors. What else right. is in between? <laughs> well, a lot of technical. I, I'm a technical translator. Um, I don't do literary. So I don't translate books, for example. I, or I do translate books. But for example, um, I have translated books on religion. I have translated math books and um, social studies books and things like that. But I don't translate literature. Mm -hmm. And so that's that's um, mainly the, the main thing for me. I don't really translate. And, and I don't do, there is another field in translation that is called transcreation, for which uh, linguists can be either very good or very bad, <laughs> because it, it's about looking at the original text and then trying to express the same idea in, a, in another language, um, but transcreating it, not just translating it. And so I myself am not very good at that. Mm -hmm. So I try to avoid that as well. Um, so the range of clients, um, I, just this morning I was I met with a group of colleagues and we were talking about that. Um, in, my, in our field, in translation and interpreting, you have two types of clients. You can work for direct clients and that would be if you, if you find a company that needs translation or interpreting and you work for them directly. And the other big field or the other big part is working for LSPs or that means language service providers, mm -hmm. uh, which are basically agencies, big agencies that will, uh, for example, if 
um, as, as a medical translator, I can't really, as one single person who can only offer one language pair, approach the big pharma companies and mm-hmm. expect them to give me some work. Those companies actually deal with LSPs, and so they hire agencies that will manage their projects into hundreds of languages and who will take care of all the little details of dealing with the linguists, the translators, the editors, and so on, the subtitlers, and so on. So um, for the work that I do for for big companies like that, um, they are, for instance, um, in the, um, you know, farm, big farm companies, um, uh, pharma companies, uh, that is done through LSPs. So I have a lot of clients who are LSPs and they provide a regular flow of work. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's also great because if I were, I do have um, some clients that are direct clients, but they only need my work, my services maybe um, once a year. And so that wouldn't be enough to, to, to put food on the table. So um, when you work for agencies, um, then that's great because then they, they send you work every single day. Mm-hmm. And so they keep you busy with a variety of projects. Right. And, and so you basically, when you start working with an agency like that, you declare the areas that you want to work in. Mm-hmm. And so you say something like, for example, I can do market research studies. I can do clinical trials. And I, I mean, I can translate, right? Mm-hmm. Clinical trials. I can translate this and that and that. And they will usually give you a long list of um, topics to see which ones you feel comfortable with. And then they send you work within the areas that you stated that you want to work in. Mm-hmm. And that is great. And you get to work um, on a variety of things. So from from uh, the range can be as wide or as narrow as you want to make it. Mm-hmm. Um, this morning, I was talking to some colleagues who were explaining that they work with um, materials, you know, just in general materials. And so that's their area that they work mm-hmm. in. And so there are some people who do only legal translation or, right. Right. And, and others who do, um, a, a wider range of topics. Right. Right. Um, and part of what you said really resonates with me because my work in my professional life is doing naming projects and it's, it's sort of the same. We might work with one client maybe once a year or once every couple of years as they have products that need to be named. The best situation is when we're basically on retainer with them or they uh, have a steady stream of things that need to be named. And then we know we always have the work coming in. So that that's part of the, uh, issue when you you have your own company or, or you're doing things on your own is trying to secure that steady stream of work that's coming in so you're not constantly on edge wondering where your next project is going to come from. And part of that is doing excellent work. If you continually produce excellent work, then you will always have a flow of clients because they know that you're reliable, you get the stuff done, you know, fair prices, all the rest of it. Um, so you're building your reputation through your work all the time. Mm-hmm. That's true. Yes, because you know it's um, the the business mantra is true. It's harder to uh, keep a client than to find a client. Yes. <laughs> so, and and how do you keep them by doing all the things you've just mentioned? Yeah. Um, so uh, you you mentioned a, a lot of different types of of clients and agencies that you work for. Do you do government work at all? Um, I do, but uh, for instance, to do 
government work, um, it depends on what you mean by government work. But for example, I, I live in Mexico. And mm-hmm. so for some of the things that I would love to do and that I know that I'm able to do, I would need clearance um, it, yeah. for the U.S., mm-hmm. for example, to work with the U.S. government. And I have tried, um, I know that the, we participated in a, um, a bid for a big project um, having to do with energy, um, but they were requiring um, U.S. citizens. And so mm-hmm. that's, that's always been a limitation. Sure. I do a lot of work for NGOs, and oh, okay. uh, in my interpreting um, work, I do a lot of work for the U.N., Mm, interesting. Okay. This is, this is something else that, um, that might be of interest to your listeners. Um, geographical location because of the pandemic has stopped being an issue when it comes to accessing great, uh, work such mm-hmm. as, for example, UN work, mm-hmm. because now in the past, I live in a, in a small, uh, place in Northern Mexico and that has, uh, some advantages, but also some disadvantages when it comes to work. Because um, as a conference interpreter, if I were to live in Mexico City, for example, I would have access to much more interesting jobs and and many more jobs. Mm -hmm. And so that was always the case before the pandemic. Um, But with the pandemic, uh, conference interpreting... um, or the pandemic accelerated the adoption of remote um, simultaneous interpreting. And so doing it remote means that you can be sitting at your office or at your house. um, And from there you connect, you know, via zoom that everybody knows today or Mm -hmm. um, another platform. And so you are the interpreter for a meeting that may be taking place on the other side of the world. Mm -hmm. And so that has opened a lot of opportunities for us um, in conference interpreting. Yeah. I I mentioned the government work just because here in the U.S., there are quite a few opportunities with the U.S. government. And you're right, you know, being a citizen um, is extremely important unless it's an overseas type of job. But Mm -hmm. they are always looking for people um, to work as translators, usually uh, it, it can be very sensitive, but sometimes not so much. Or there's uh, quite a lot of research that's being done, too, uh, for people who are multilingual. Uh, and government work is nice because it's pretty steady. You get benefits, you know. Um, sometimes yeah. geography can be an issue. They they do prefer people to who live around Washington, D.C. or the surrounding area in Maryland mm-hmm. to work there. Um then of I course have, I have yes, a colleague who works um she was actually working full time as a translator for the CDC and oh, then she switched to the to the census office mm-hmm. so she she's um definitely involved in government work yeah. but she is a US citizen yeah um the other part of it though is depending on your own personal beliefs do you want to work for the government or <laughs> do you, do you want to be associated with the military or the intelligence organization? So right. um, that can be personally for people that can be a big decider, you know, whether that's who they want to be paying the money or participating in activities for it. So always something you have to think about. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and as a, a person who has their own company, I'm sure that this comes up for you occasionally too. You might be approached by a client that you feel you just can't work for because they don't share your your moral principles or, or something like that. Um, 
in my business, my partners and I made a decision a long time ago that we would never work for a tobacco company because mm. we just think mm-hmm. it's bad. And even if the money is good, we wouldn't want to be participating in that. So it, it's a personal decision that people need to make. Right. And you are able to do that when you mm-hmm. um, work on your own, yes. which you can't really do if you're working for a company and they assign you to a project, then you have to do it. So. That's right. <laughs> exactly right. Yeah. Um, so let's see, we've talked about your background and and the work that you're doing. Take us through a little bit of, of what you might be doing in a typical day or, or a couple of days. What's your work actually like? Um, okay. So, um, I, on, let's, let's talk about a typical week because that, that probably gives you a better picture. So, um, on a typical week, I'm probably going to be working on about six different translation projects. Mm-hmm. Some of which are short enough that they can be done in a day and others that mm-hmm. are longer and then they will extend several days or sometimes several weeks. But most of the projects that I work on can be completed, um, are short, you know, and so um, I haven't worked on a, a long project for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it, uh, uh, as part of my typical week, I will usually have one or two interpreting assignments that I can take. um, Most of them take a couple of hours of my day. And so I will do the assignment in the morning, for example, uh, depending on on the times, but most of the time they're in my morning. And then um, that takes, that means that the day before or a couple of days before that, I spend some time preparing for the assignment, mm-hmm. reading, um, checking if there's new terminology, looking at the reference materials and things like that. I also, um, because I like teaching so much, I am a trainer. And uh, so I, I provide training uh, via webinars mostly to for translators and interpreters. So very often during a week, I will have a webinar that I have to prepare and uh, present. Mm-hmm. And so I also work on doing that. Um, I also serve on um, the American Translators Association uh, on one of the committees. So there's always meetings um, to be had and things to be organized for the association, for the committee. And that's also very enjoyable because you get to interact with colleagues and that makes it you know being a translator can be very lonely because you're just Mm -hmm. sitting there um, in front of your computer all day and so being able to interact with colleagues to work together on projects makes it less lonely and um, and very interesting and um, so what happens is every day um, for example you would open your email see what's going on uh, receive job offers for for that day, things that have to be done either that day or the day after mm-hmm. or a couple of days down the road. Uh, you may be asked to prepare a quote. Um, most of the clients that I work with, we have already agreed on the rates prior to me working with them. So I don't have to spend or to waste any time preparing quotes they will just offer um, me the project, and if I'm available, I'll say yes, and then um, you know get it scheduled, start working on it. Um, the projects can range from the work that I do on the projects, the translation projects can range from actually translating content 
to reviewing somebody else's translation because in the translation industry, professional translation has um, at least two pairs of eyes looking at the mm-hmm. material and sometimes three. And so I'm either the, the translator or the reviewer or the proofreader, which is the third step on the projects that I'm doing uh, during the week. Um, I may also be doing uh, subtitles, for example. Um, I don't work for the major subtitling companies, but I do subtitles as part of the um, of some of the projects that I do for my clients. I also do voiceovers, um, mm-hmm. not for TV or anything like that, but the client will sometimes say, well, here is a presentation or an e-learning module that I need you to translate. And once we have reviewed it and everything, I want you to record the voice over for that. Mm-hmm. And so I will record the voiceover. Um, that happens. That's not something that happens every week, but it happens at least once a month. Um, what else? What else do I do? Well, th- that's mostly um, the kind of work that I do. Mm-hmm. And there's the running the business part of what you do. Also. Yes. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Uh, which is not, it doesn't um, necessarily make me very happy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not big on admin work. Um, but uh, I should probably say that um, my husband, I'm married and I have two children. And my husband is an engineer. And we decided many, many years ago when our our kids were babies, little babies, we decided that we wanted to have um, more control over our time than him having a separate job would allow us to do. Mm-hmm. So he, uh, we decided to work together and he takes care of all the um, admin work. <laughs> so oh, that's how wonderful, wonderful for, for me. <laughs> yes. And we also have, um, for the conference interpreting side of things, where when we have local events here in um, where we live, we, uh, my husband is in charge of contacting clients and setting everything up and then installing everything because you have to install a booth and then um, organize the receivers. Sometimes these events, there are hundreds of attendees and you have to give each person a receiver and then you have to collect them at the end and everything. So he takes care of all that as Mm -hmm. well. So he's really a partner for you in the business. Oh, yes. We are partners. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Oh, that's fantastic. You have such a skill set. Just listening to you tick off all the different things that you do, it it sounds amazing. Uh, And not surprising. I mean, you've been doing this for uh, a long time, more than 20 years. So Mm -hmm. it's, you know, you need all those skills to to do what you're doing. Uh, That's so fantastic. So um, just looking back now from, from this point in your career, if there are people who are studying linguistics right now and who want to get into this field, finding it interesting, what would you suggest that they study perhaps? Like what would be the best classes for them to take and what kind of experiences would help them as they move into um, looking for jobs? Well, um, you know, in addition to to these jobs, the, what we would, we would probably call the production jobs, there are mm-hmm. also the management jobs that are available to um, to anyone who wants to get into the industry. So project management and things like that. So anything to do with business and productivity will always, always be helpful. Um, and then, of course, if for, for the actual translation side of things, um, there is translation and interpreting that they would need to study 
uh, if their schools already offer those courses, then that's great. But if not, uh, there are a lot of people who get their BA in, um, you know, in, in anything, not only linguistics, but any field. And then they go and get either their master's or they study a diploma program um, or, you know, just get trained in general on being a translator and how to be a translator and interpreter. And what's very important, I would say, is um, for people who may be interested in joining this industry to um, connect with other uh, people who are already working there. And that can be done very easily uh, with um, the professional associations. So, for example, the American Translators Association, um, the ATA, or and there is a big conference coming up in October uh, where you know, people meet and, and this year it's going to be in LA. And so that's a great opportunity to meet other people and to, to probably connect with some LSPs and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, now today with social media, it's a lot easier to start getting connected and to start networking than it was in the past. So right. just, you know, Twitter and LinkedIn are two, um, to areas where you can connect with others who are um, in the industry and see if it's something that you would like to explore. And then there are all of these uh, portals that where you can, I'm sure if you Google uh, where to find translation jobs, that will take you to places like pros.com, that's P-R-O-Z.com, or Translators Cafe. And if you're interested in, in starting it, um, to explore that, you can always create your profile and see if you will attract the kinds of clients that you would feel good working with. Yeah. Do you think it's a good idea for people to uh, create a profile on more general websites like Indeed or Upwork or, or places where you can get freelance work? Well, it depends on what you're what you're trying to do. I have uh-huh. a, a dear colleague and friend who started out um, doing just that. And uh, she says that it gave her the confidence that she needed to start posting into the more specialized um, translation websites. Mm -hmm. So definitely. Um, And and then, you know, just know that um, from what I understand, I have never had a profile on those sites, but from what I understand, you can get offered all kinds of jobs um, Mm In, in, in those websites. And then if you really like um, the translation side of things, then um, finding your way to more specialized um, websites would mm-hmm. be great. Yeah. Okay. That's really good. Um, let's see. Is there anything that we haven't talked about so far that you want to, to make sure to get in there, pieces of advice or just an experience you have that might be really relevant for linguists? Well, maybe just... Um, Sharing one little uh, thing, <laughs> and I think this would be a, a nice closing anecdote. I was uh, doing an interpreting job for a big um, beer company, uh, in um, and and they were talking about marketing and all these things, and it was a big event for their marketing team, their marketing and business team. Mm-hmm. And then the director, the global director of marketing and um, and business, or I can't remember the exact title, gets up there and then he starts talking about, you know, all the skills and this and that. And then he said, and I am here to tell you that my degree, which my family thought was completely useless, 
has been very helpful to me. And so, of course, the natural question was, well, what? Yeah. What is your degree, right? Well, it turns out he had a major in philosophy oh. with a minor in fine arts. So something completely unrelated, right? Like, and he said his family never thought that he would be able to make a living with with that degree. But he is the global director of marketing for a very prestigious, very well-known global firm. And so my take on all that is it doesn't matter what you, um, what your degree is on, what you learned in school, what matters is really what you do with it. Mm-hmm. And what you decide to to uh, go after, and so if you see an opportunity and it looks like something that you might enjoy, try to grab it. You know, and if it's for you, maybe it will. You know, the doors will open. If it's not for you, then move on to something else. Mm-hmm. But don't don't limit yourself to a little box mm-hmm. that says because I went to school and I studied this, this is the only thing that I can do. Oh, that's such great advice and, and amazing, not really, but uh, echoed by the other folks that we've talked to as well. So mm-hmm. I'm, I'm just so glad to hear you say that based on this amazing career that you have had. Um, I think that's it. Thank you so much for coming on and talking with me today. Um, this has been just a wealth of information and all the links for things that you spoke about, we will put in our show notes. Um, are you open to people connecting with you on LinkedIn? If they'd oh, please, like to? yes. Okay. Yes, absolutely. All right. I will put your LinkedIn link in there as well. So Nora, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Um, This has been great. Linguistics Career Launch 2021 was a one-month intensive program intended to familiarize linguistic students and faculty with career options beyond academia in business, tech, government, and nonprofit organizations. Videos of all our recorded sessions are available on our YouTube channel. LCL was organized by Nancy Frischberg, Alexandra Johnson, Emily Pace, Susan Steele, and Laurel Sutton. You can get in touch at linguisticscareerlaunch at gmail.com. The music is Neptunia by Scanglobe and is licensed under Creative Commons. Podcast production by Gregory Gray at Tuatara Design.